Hello and welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. I'm very excited about today's show. The title is Nine Recession-Proof Project Management Skills and Tools That Can Save Your PhD Career. Sounds like a bold statement, but the truth is project management is... Uh, goes much deeper in industry than it does in academia. Uh, many people in industry don't think that you have learned anything about project management in academia. And it's true in one sense because there are entire methodologies, whether it's Agile or Scrum or Six Sigma uh, or Agile Fall or Lean or Kanban, Kanban, I uh, forget how that's said. Uh, there's a lot of very specific methodologies that people follow in industry because you can imagine Managing billions of dollars in terms of a budget and very large teams requires uh, a lot more structure than you at the lab bench working on your thesis project uh, or you uh, working on your lesson plans and TAing. Uh, because of this, uh, we want to show you what you can do to leverage the project management that you do have. You have the raw materials, put it together, be able to communicate it so you can get hired in industry. We have a lot to cover today, and with that, we're going to jump into today's radio show. With Let's that, go. we're going to bring our panel on. Very excited to talk to our panel. We have two incredible guests, both pro part of the Project Management Consortium. We have on Karen Pozo with us, who's going to join, and we'll bring on Orly with us too, and Orly will stay on with us. Good to Hello. have both of you on. Karen, good to see you again. How are you? Good to see Hi. you, Isaiah. I'm Hi, Orly. How are you? Really good. So thanks for coming on. Um, just wanted to talk to you a little bit about the Project Management Consortium and really what were the gaps that you had in your, your uh, I guess, the, the knowledge gaps that you had in terms of what project management is before going through the programs, materials, Karen, and then afterwards, what did you learn? How did the, the, the program help you? How did working with Orly help you understand project management in industry? Absolutely. So I had done project management for, for years as an academic, and then I transitioned to a project manager role in a nonprofit. It, it is a very uh, young organization, so I'm wearing multiple hats. And I joined the project management consortium because I wanted to gain methodology. And I discovered a whole world in this PMC consortium, thanks to Holly. So in this program, basically, uh, she explains first what a project manager is, so we have kind of an idea when after doing a lot of years in academia, but there is more to it than what we think it is. Right. Uh, there is a whole project management cycle, in fact, already to start with. And in addition to learn about what the role was about and what the specific skills required were, um, I also learned about some tools, some really practical tools to use and how to proceed to be a productive um, project manager. In addition, uh, th there is a really cool module towards the end, which is about how to, to move forward with your career as a pro project manager and what skills to highlight on your resume. So it's really practical in, in two terms, in terms of knowing more about what a project manager is and how to be a good project manager, even an excellent project manager, but mm. also how to flourish in this role and, and move forward in your career. So I highly recommend this program. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate everything you're saying. So in project management in industry, it's almost like a mini career in itself. You mentioned there's all these tools, these methodologies, mm -hmm. frameworks, and then we compare it to, you know, quote unquote, project management and academia. 
but that doesn't really exist, right? And so I think a lot of people here in the audience are like, oh yeah, I manage projects currently. But that's really not true. So maybe, just one more question. You know, when you were in academia, how did you manage a project? Probably like me, right? You just, you, you documented things in your lab notebook. You set up an experiment, maybe had a conversation once or twice a week with the PI. Like what, how limiting, how limited was your project management experience in academia? I first, first, I didn't know that there were like different methodologies such as Agile or, or Scrums, which are in fact methodologies in which um, we set up very short goals and meet on a regular, te- uh, on a regular, uh, t- reg- regularly with our team members to make sure yeah. small goals are, are, are done or find out what problems comes up. We don't wait for months to find out that there is a problem and try to sort it out. So that, that was like a, a, a big learning. And then there is a, a really big aspect that we don't encounter so much in academia is managing people. Mm. And uh, so, so, I mean, at least uh, where I work, there, is, there are lots of people interactions and uh, all the people I interact with are people who are above me if, if you, in terms of hierarchy, but I'm the one who has to kind of tell them what should be done. So I... Um, also through the program um, and through discussions in the group, I'm learning how to manage up. Mm. It's the way it's called. Yeah. And I, I remember hearing that phrase managing up and I think there's a lot of confusion to it, but if you're, for all of you listening, Karen just said there's a big component where you need to tell the people above you what to do, which seems off, right? Like how can you tell the people above you? But that's your job as a project manager is to keep them on track and up to date on the projects and tell them what you need for them. It's very different than what we're used to. You usually don't go to your PI uh, and say what you need them to do uh, in order to make the project move forward. It's just not the way that we usually approach it. Um, and it's not structured at all. It's not, it's not a process we learn. Managing up is a big part of uh, being a project manager and a big part of the program. Uh, Karen, thanks for coming on. Great to see you. You're welcome. Thanks for sharing. Great to see you. Bye-bye. Bye. And Orly, what did you think about what Karen said in terms of, you know, the misconceptions of, uh, I'm a project manager already in academia, right? What are, what are some of the misconceptions? First of all, hi. Uh, <laughs> um, many of us are project managers. Many of us are project managers by nature. Hmm just by doing what we do. Uh, But there are some misconceptions about being able to manage a project in academia does not necessarily mean you can manage a project in industry because of many misconceptions, such as uh, people in academia don't understand the language of industry project management. Um, Also, um, Mm. the methodology, um, and we're going to, I assume talk about that waterfall versus not waterfall in academia. You are more oriented to either waterfall or zero methodology, zero methodology very often more so than any kind of methodology. And there are very many um, phases to project management that are not that um, politely say we do not tap into when we're in academia. So that's maybe the three most important aspects for not being able to really, I think it's really hard to transition immediately from project management in academia to industry without getting any kind of training and understanding the landscape of industry project management. Agreed. 
And I think a big part of today is going to be helping everybody understand how many frameworks are involved uh, in project management. Frameworks that you'll be asked about during interviews, even if you're not going to be a project manager. Let's say you just want to get into R&D. What does that mean to you? R&D is not how research is done in academia. It's managed according to frameworks, frameworks that are taught uh, in the project management consortium and taught in project management uh, in general. Um, so if just so we all have the same starting point, some people here, no idea what, what we mean by industry project management, how would you define it? So first of all, um, I think we both like to say that it's a direct career path towards leadership, especially for PhD, because understanding, even understanding project management without being an actual project manager really under, really helps understanding how projects are being done in industry. Um, and the other way to look at that, it's, how you can understand allocating and directing company resources in order to complete a task. Now, a project is very often something that is unique. It has a start and an end, and it happens once, right? It's not operation, but actually to understand a process in industry also helps understanding operation, not only the classic definition of project management. Exactly. And... A big thing we want to get through to for a lot of you who are really struggling right now. You don't know which career to get into. You don't know what that next step is for you. This is a great transition point, uh, not just because you can get into any career path after being a project manager. It's literally the, the one role that requires the skill set required for every other role in industry, but it's also in very high demand. So 33% worldwide increase in project management, management positions by 2027. So this is according to a pro, uh, McKinsey and Company report, um, 22 million jobs worldwide. Why are we seeing such a surge in project management roles orally, especially for PhDs since the pandemic, since the decentralization of workforces everywhere? So um, I think the first thing companies would do in a recession is de-risking. They don't want to risk. They have resources and they want to know that they manage them correctly, properly. So when you invest in project management, you invest, you're supposed to be investing in protecting the resources of the company. Absolutely. Uh, two things we just talked about, right? I mentioned decentralized workforces. So coordinating becomes incredibly important when people are not in the same office. It becomes much harder. Uh, Increased risk management, de-risking. Um, what about some of the other things here, Orly, especially, you know, driving innovation despite the recession? Why is this obviously a goal? Um, you know, digital operations and decentralization kind of go hand in hand. But then supply chains. What about supply chains and innovation? I know you have some thoughts on both of those. Two things. So innovation. Um you know, if you look at the deal-making uh, landscape during the recession for biotech, it hasn't gone down. On the contrary, big companies have a lot of money, and they're trying not to miss on deals. They're trying not to miss on that during mm -hmm. a recession because they can get it cheaper. Yes. Um, so that's one thing, and innovation never stops. Um, the other thing is um, supply chain, and I'm going to give you an example that is not from um, that is not from the biotech, pharma, chemistry, STEM world. Have you tried to buy a bike lately? Have you? 
Me? No. Anyone? Uh, anyone? Right actually, if, if you're in the U.S. and try to buy a bike. I was looking at bikes a couple months ago, and I couldn't find one, believe it or not. And I thought it was just because everybody, it's the same thing for uh, any, any sort of outdoor stuff. It's very no. hard to find right now. There are, bikes are in shortage. The supply chain in China didn't predict the pandemic. And no one in the U.S. predicted it. And there was more demand, right? So, you know, and six months ago, I didn't think, oh, I need to upgrade my bike, you know, it's going to be a shortage of supply chains. So here you go, project management. Anyone, any company that had good project management that were able to predict this shortage in supply chains for bike particles, Mm. are now making more money. Yeah, and, and this is a big part of the program, right? And something I learned in terms of risk management, there are those known unknowns and the unknown unknowns, right? And right. something like a pandemic that shuts down the world, kind of an unknown unknown. But exactly. I was just going to say, but now that it's happened, I think it's a known unknown that people are preparing for. You see companies preparing to make sure it never happens again or preparing for a second lockdown, et cetera, because they know it's a risk, which is why a lot of companies have stayed decentralized. Your thoughts? I think you kind of, I think you kind of summed it up, right? I mean, um, just having a company man being managed well requires people that understand how projects are managed, even the R and D and upper management. Yeah, and I, what I find to be uh, beyond con concerning, concerning, but almost. <laughs> slightly uh, annoying is how ph how much phds are not able to talk about this this is something that almost for any role in industry you'll be talked through hey you know how do you think this role is going to be affected by the pandemic or what are some things that we can do to uh, eliminate risk here for any role let alone a project management role and most of you have, you have no idea how to talk about risk or change or project management or operations it's something that you have very little exposure to and so looking at this uh, chart, right? Industry versus academia, project management. You know, I think the two things that'll help you get your bearings are deliverables and a budget. At some point you realized money didn't grow on trees in academia and you had to, uh, you know, put in orders for things or wait for a PO or apply for a grant. And then you had to deliver something to get that, usually data, results, etc. depending on what kind of a PhD you had. Um, in industry though, there's some other things to consider. Can you walk us through the industry side of things? Yes. So, yeah. So I think the first um, important aspect in industry is that you cannot chase any idea that you have. You have to have a justification and much better than in industry, right? I mean, there are some people that go from academia to industry R&D and complain about the fact that they need approval to order primers. Um, usually it's not that serious of a case, but in order to do something, you need a justification. You cannot just like try it out, which at the end, I think protects you and the company. Um, and then in industry, very often you have many tight deadlines. You have your monthly report, your quarterly report, your uh, media report, your end of the year report. You have those deadlines um, and you have to 
you know, you cannot go like, ah, you know, I didn't do it and it's going to be fine. It's not going to be fine. Uh, so you do need uh, to hold on to deadline. Again, has a lot of advantages to you as an individual and a professional and to the company. The budgets are um, in millions. I know some people mm -hmm. come from very rich labs. I came from a very rich lab. But when you go to industry, even when you come from a rich lab, you go to the industry and it's even if you are in the millions world in academia, you go to industry, it's many more millions. Yes. <laughs> the, the budgets right. are huge. And, yeah. and for me, it was eye-opening because I was like, I'm from a very rich lab. And no, <laughs> it's completely different. The scope. Yeah. As a project manager, you have to understand, understand differences in scope and scale. Okay, what's the scope of this project? What's the scale of the budget, et cetera? And if, and if you even have talks initially when you're applying – uh, and you can't mentally work within a framework of hundreds of millions or billions, let's say, you know, if you're trying to get a job at a Pfizer or, or other, other larger companies, um, you're going to struggle to uh, allocate resources and, and nobody's going to want to put you in charge of those resources, right? Uh, if, if you don't understand it and if you don't have any, any training uh, to, to back up dealing with that budget. Okay, so uh, transitioning into project management, developing project management skills, you talk a lot in the program about developing the language of project management or the language of industry. What do you mean by that? Um, so when you go to industry, things like a charter, an SOW, uh, methodology, waterfall, uh, you know, uh, so many things that I, I don't even manage to think of because they're so natural to me, part of my language. Um, very often when you um, interview some, someone from academia and you would talk about a sales cycle and a closure and a phase review and people would look at you blankly, that's not a very good sign. Now, none of these words are special or hard to understand, but it's part of the language, right? It's like someone from a chemistry lab would walk into a molecular biology lab. You know, it would take two weeks for them to understand the lingo, but it's better if they come prepared. So it's just yeah. a matter of some definitions that are really important to understand, but more so it's really important to comprehend the, what's behind them, right? What do we need? Yeah, and, and so uh, nomenclature, which all of us have uh, an understanding of the power of learning a new nomenclature uh, when we first got into our, our specific niche PhD backgrounds. What made it niche was it had a different language, different nomenclature. Uh, and part of that nomenclature is then putting those words together into a framework, an understanding. Now, this is one of the key frameworks you'll be taught on. Ha most of you will have never had exposure to half of this framework, initiation and, and project closure. Can you just walk us through these four phases and, and maybe talk about some of the different types of deliverables, like a statement of work or project charter or different things that most of us wouldn't know what it is. Sure. So we discuss it endlessly in the program and in, on the Facebook group, but just basically each, we said that a project has a start at the end, and an end. So it starts in the initiation phase that traditionally ends with a project charter that is approved. And then we go into the planning phase, which where we actually plan the entire project that ends with the signed and approved statement of work. Then we go to the execution phase where we actually start with 
building the project, making the project, having all the deliverables. And then this ends with um, something that we give, we make, we produce, we write. And then you have uh, the project closure that ends with all the reports and, re and the reviews as per defined by the specific company mm -hmm. or project management office that is in charge on the project. Exactly. And, and so you have that framework to work within the four phases. And of course, there's entire trainings in each of those phases. You have to know those inside and out, no matter which methodology you're using, which is another framework. But so we're, we're talking about frameworks upon frameworks that most of you have never learned. This is the, the second core framework of project management, time, scope, cost, right? Balancing these uh, for the highest quality possible. So can you maybe give us a real world example of how you've had to balance really all four of these things in a project recently? Yeah. Um, so it's called the project management triangle. And um, very often um, the two things that you usually need to balance are the time and the cost. Um, mm. If you are in a recession and your company had to let go of three people, which account for 30% of your team, it's your job as a project manager to say, hey boss, I'm not gonna finish it by the end of the quarter, right? I'll need more time. Or um, what I did, I had to go to some of the stakeholders and say, I need more money. You let go of these people, I understand. You don't wanna pay benefits, but maybe I can hire consultants. So maybe you can give me some different kind of money to hire a consultant to actually be able to manage doing that on time without giving up on scope and quality. The other way yes. is you can actually give up on quality to say maybe I don't need it that high end for mm. that specific deliverable at this very specific point. Which is something I think as PhDs we have a, hard, a lot of a very challenging time with, right? But we do it in academia all the time. You, you don't not do an experiment because you have an instrument that's 20 years old or because you have to piece together reagents, whatever. No, you do it anyway, even though the quality is less than having the state-of-the-art equipment that maybe you hoped you had. Or, you know, you do the best you can from, uh, you know, let's say you're in sociology or ecology, whatever, right? You, you do the best you can from where you are, even if you can't fly to the Galapagos Islands, right? I mean, it's the same kind of thing. So you have to be able to make those judgment calls and it takes uh, developing your executive function much, much more as, as a project manager. And that, that's what allows you to uh, manage up too, which we'll get to later. Okay, so you've talked about risk management which comes down to really uh, forecasting why projects fail is that I think a lot of us wouldn't, wouldn't realize as reasons why projects fail. Yeah, so the first thing um, is focusing on technical details instead of business value. We as PhDs are so used to look at protocols and calibrations and standard curves and so on and so forth. And sometimes I think we get lost in the details um, or projects that um, we talk in the program about um, fail fast, right? So sometimes we don't manage to say, hey, we're failing, we should stop it because there is a business value there and this project should cater not to our curiosity or a need to succeed, but on a business value. 
So um, that's one very, very important thing. Projects fail because people are focusing on details rather than on value. Yeah, and, and we, we don't have time to go into it here. There's a training in the program. How many of you as attendees have heard of change management? You've actually heard that phrase. You know, you've heard of people getting, being hired as change managers in industry, et cetera. Anybody? Uh, so, so what is that, Orly, and how does it relate to, to risk or avoiding you know, project failure or changing to avoid project failure? I, I like to look at change management. Change management in relation to project management is managing the people side of the project. When you know how to manage people, to align them with the team, with the company's scope, with the company's value, and know how to get them to deliver the deliverables, even when the landscape is changing. Mm. Because of recession, for instance, mm. it makes you a much better project manager. Yeah, so let's just unpack these two, and then we're going to talk about um, more advanced frameworks in terms of methodologies. Let, let's talk about the, the risk management framework first, then, then change management. Um, so starting here, we've discussed this quite a bit. Any final thoughts looking at these six, these six summarized points for, for a risk management framework? Like maybe something that you do or that you've done recently to manage risk in terms of a, a real-world project you're working on. I have a lot of examples, but just in the interest of time, I would just focus on sex. Risk management is like a muscle. When you get used to managing risk continuously, not just when you write the risk management part in the planning phase for the statement of work, when mm. you when you do it quite often, when you do it enough, when you keep training yourself about risk management, when you read case studies, you get to know risk management as it becomes an instinct. Mm. And then when you hit a recession, when you hit a pandemic, when something really awful happened, where, where M&A is happening, right? Yeah. Then you're going to hit the ground running. Yeah, and... And then just to tie a, tie a bow, at least temporarily, around change management. Again, change management is the people side of project management. Guess what? Newsflash to most of you. You're going to be better at managing projects than change. Because as PhDs, you know, we kind of stay away from the people side of the projects. We do it ourselves. The nature of a lot of our work, of our thesis, it's more individual. Change management, you have to work with key stakeholders, executives who have authority over you, but somehow you have to manage up, which is one of the key skills that we've been talking about. Um, you also have to maybe talk to an investor. Maybe you have to translate the technical data you came up with into business data. Okay, this is why this matters because it's going to save XYZ on your margins, your cogs. This is a language a lot of you don't understand. The idea of having to go get a stakeholder, uh, another person with key influence at an organization on your side, internally or externally, is something you have no practice with. And you can't just learn that it's important and learn these stages to master it. You have to practice it behaviorally. And that's something that you'll practice in the project management consortium private group. So with that in mind, just on the process tools and activity of change management, what, what are some key takeaways, Orly? Um, first of all, this is something that you are probably going to be asked on while interviewing. Mm. 
I think that's the most important thing. And we do deal with that. We do talk about that and train for that um, in the private group because this, as I said, you know, this is something you really need. This is one of the things that when you're being interviewed, you need to reflect out. You need, it has to come across that you know how to do that. Right. Right. And, um, and you have to be flexible. So we're also talking about flexibility. So I want to focus on the last part, which is activity. What specific steps are you going to take to manage the change in the project? So when you're asked or you're asked sometimes uh, for a project management position, you would be given um, a scenario and they're going to ask you, how are you going to manage change to this project? Okay, so you would need to have two or three solutions or possible outcomes for each change that you would be facing during the simulation. Yeah, and it, it really is a big part of, of getting hired at the PhD level in project management and getting a, a PhD level salary. They're not going to want to hire a PhD if you can't work with other people. And if you can't do this higher level, more senior project management level stuff like change management and risk management. Um, so let's talk about these higher level frameworks, Orly. We have PMBO, Prince2, Agile, Scrum, Lean, Kanban, Waterfall, Six Sigma. Good news. You get trained on this in the program, but here you can just tell how they differ, right? So ones that are fast, that, that allow for you know, maybe smaller teams, whether those smaller teams are at a big company or it's a small startup, to move quicker, right? So Scrum and Kanban are, are both quicker, um, but which has more structure, Right, which which ones might be more uh, have more guidelines or rules, less flexibility? You're going to see them down here, right? Whether it's Six Sigma uh, or or Lean, but up here you'll see that Prince Two and Agile are more dynamic. If you want dynamic and fast, Scrum, the most stable and structured waterfall, which is uh, hint what most of us did in academia without realizing it. Uh, so when it comes to these project management methodologies, Orly. What should we keep in mind here about, I guess, the, the, the variety of methodologies? Why is it important to understand them and really to learn what the company you're applying to is using or going to use or what the department might be using versus the company? Sorry for that. That's so right. I think you know me well enough to know that I think that many of those words are just words. Hmm. But these are words that are important to know. And you need to know what's behind it. Because if a company is um, priding itself for being very agile, even if it works waterfall, mm. you need to talk in agile language, right? Yes. You need to understand what is a sprint. Now, it could be that in classic Agile, sprint would be a week or two weeks, and this company has six or eight-week sprints. I've seen that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it doesn't matter. You really need to understand what's – if a company says it's Agile or Waterfall, it very often talks about the company's culture. Now, if a company is really um, using the Six Sigma, which is more operational – but if you are actually um, kind of going to work on something that has to do with Six Sigma, this, for instance, is very important because you need to really know Six Sigma to work in such a company. 
Mm. Okay. Yeah. Um, lean is also a concept. It could be a methodology with tools, but it can also be a concept of like working lean, which means you're not going to waste anything. So it's a way of working. I know for, for instance, that Amazon is much leaner than mm. Apple, mm. even for the same products. And Amazon takes pride of that. Mm. So it's something you need to know. The pen book is a way to be trained as a waterfall project manager, mm. right? Um, Prince2 is more of a software, but like the Prince2 pen book and waterfall can be kind of tied together. And as you can see on this graph, they're more towards the left. Six Sigma very often kind of, mitigates the ideas of the project management of those methodology software into a supply chain very often. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and for everything that we discussed earlier on what's relevant today, supply chains and quality control checks and uh, de-risking and decentralizing, uh, this stuff is crucial today. And you, you need to know this. You need to know, uh, you know, like anything, even in academia, you had to stay up in current trends of, of your field. You got to stay up in current trends of industry, uh, and project management really is on the forefront of what's what's shifting because uh, of those uh, disciplines that fall within project management, risk management, and change management. So let's look at two of these, right? So agile is over here, waterfalls here. So it's it's good to do a comparison of, of the two to help see some of the differences. Another reason it's good to look at waterfall is because it's very similar to what we did in academia. And it's called a waterfall because you can go down it, but not up. So a lot of you knew, you know, you realize this, maybe you put together an experiment. How many of you have had this, uh, had this happen to you? You put together an experiment and let's say it was like a six-week experiment, some of the ones you did later in grad school or as a postdoc, and you knew something wasn't right along the way, like the cells weren't where you needed them to be, something didn't work very well, the transfection efficiency, depending on what your background is, right, whatever it is. But you kept going all the way until you got that final result because you had put so much into it already and there was no real way to turn around. We've all had that, right? There was things that weren't ideal that happened along the way. And then maybe you had to wait like three weeks or a couple of weeks or even days to get that final result before you could start over. That's the waterfall model and doesn't work very well. All right. So Orly, what do you, what should, what do we need to add to that uh, in terms of waterfall in academia versus waterfall in industry and why these other methodologies were developed? So waterfall comes in handy very often still in IT projects where we're in like, I think the car industry, um, although some teams work agile because um, one, the idea of waterfall is that one phase should be completely done before you move to the other phase. Right. Okay, in Agile, you have more iteration, you go back. I think this is the main definition of the two projects. Now, of, of the two concepts. Now, there are very few companies that work completely waterfall, and there are very few companies that work completely Agile. But the thing in waterfall is that you can never go back. So on one hand, projects in academia are more waterfall-based because you have to finish this before this can happen. But there is not a very specific locked step where someone will tell you you cannot look again at something with the new instrument 
And yeah. in industry, you really have to understand you're done with testing. You're saying this is good. You're moving it to operation. You're done. You cannot go back. It's more definitive. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the, looking at the, the reverse, in a sense, of that, or one of the reasons that uh, Agile was made was to kind of combat not being able to uh, go up the waterfall, so to speak. It had to be more flexible. It had to be more circular. Um, and uh, by looking at the figure on the left versus the right, you can see the differences. So Agile, usually shorter, it operates within a week to four week sprints that they're called. Um, and the, the goal is to get feedback faster so you don't go down a six month path of a project, right? And, and have to wait to get a result from those six months before being able to start over. Uh, became, it was actually uh, first developed by a PhD, uh, Dr. Sutherland. Uh, so Orly, what's important to know about Agile, just in terms of comparing it to Waterfall to show the, the, the breadth of the differences between project management methodologies? Yeah, so Agile has, it's, it's a continuous cycle and things are more um, looped together, right? So um, with Agile, things are more, on one hand, they're more defined because the deliverables are smaller and shorter very often. But there are continuous iterations of, um, of redefining the requirements. You're more uh, in touch with the stakeholders. Um, I think it's more open to change and to flexibility. So it, there is not a statement of work that is a very binding legal document that is signed by all the stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And if something changes and you want to protect yourself, you have to go back and open it and re-sign it. The Agile methodology, when followed thoroughly, actually allow you to be more flexible with the deliverables, with, with the scope even. Yeah, well said. A couple of uh, methodologies that go beyond Agile. One is Scrum. The other is, is Six Sigma. Uh, these are covered in the program, or at least talked about them a little bit. I want to talk about tools, though. So tools in project management, Orly. What kind of tools do you use in industry as a project manager versus academia? What, what things did, you know, do most of our attendees probably don't even know exist, like a Gantt chart or a WBS? So I, I'm laughing because I just had a discussion with a friend of mine that is a project manager that just changed position. And I was like, what, what do you like the most? And she said, I'm back to Slack. No more Microsoft Teams. Yeah. That was like the most important thing for her that they're working, they're using Slack and not Teams. So it's right. funny, but uh, different companies are using different tools. Yes. Uh, I very often say, don't use, don't waste your time learning all the tools because it never ends, but you need to understand the type of tools. And that's also part of the language, right? If someone is asking you, um, what are you guys using for communication? It's better you don't use a WhatsApp. Um, usually people are using Slack or Team. Uh, what kind of documentation tools do you have? So Documentum is something is very old, very um, rigid, very pharmaceutical. So very often if you're interviewing to a pharmaceutical company, it's better you know what Documentum is. If you've never worked in pharma, no one is expecting you to know how to use it. 
But mm-hmm. to know that it exists and some of the pros and cons of using it, it's really important. Um, then you have planning and scheduling tools that go with uh, your next bullet point of again chart. So uh, understanding the concept of um, smart sheets, for instance, that mm-hmm. is also for co- collaboration. Even if someone is throwing something at you that you don't really understand what it is, you can always bounce back and say, yeah, I'm not sure about that. Is it similar to smart sheets? Mm-hmm. You know, um, so understanding the tools um, really uh, that exist, what kind of tools exist that you hardly ever use in academia is, re- is really important. Yeah, we were showing a Gantt chart there, which of course, you, you know, you'll be trained on if you haven't used it in PMC. The work breakdown structure, what is this and when is it used? I, I want to show this figure, uh, but if you could walk us through the basics. Yeah, so WBS is, um, as written, a deliverable-oriented method that breaks down each project into small elements, which is, um, I like to look at that as very often a, like a metabolic chart where each of the boxes might be an enzyme and then, um, you know, the little lines are, you know, the path, so path and nodes. So you have the entities, um, you have the deliverables, and very often you have the rate-limiting step. And when you manage to break down um, this the project to simple entities and put together um, the relationship between the entities and put direction onto that, it really makes it easier to run and execute this, this project plan. Yeah, exactly. And uh, again, you'll be trained on this. Uh, one last thing that we have time to show, again, a few minutes left to join and get all of the, the bonuses today, uh, a burn down chart. So this is more for agile, right? Uh, and it, and it's, it's looking at, there's a variety of ways to do it, but why, what could be the value of looking at a burn down chart or tracking what's remaining of a project over time? So a uh, burnout chart is something that I personally use to track my productivity. Mm. Uh, I, really? I think, yeah, I, I, on, on very busy weeks, I make my own burn, burnout charts wow. because, uh, yeah. Um, it works well for me. So on, um, on the horizontal line, uh, I put any unit of time. And then on the vertical line, I would put the tasks remaining. And then I would start with the amount of tasks I have for the week. And then every day I'll see how much I achieved. And it's funny because sometimes Friday, Saturday, they all just go down. But it's a really good way to kind of grasp um, your reality because sometimes, especially as PhD, we overbook ourselves. Our plates are way too full. Sometimes. And sometimes. <laughs> every <Yeah>. day. Uh, <laughs> <you know. laughs> so, uh, and this is also a very good way to see how your project, so um, how your project is actually uh, moving along. And it has to do with the tasks more with the time being spent because it really kind of, you know, you kind of check mark what you accomplish rather what you put in to the right. project. 
Yeah, and I love that methodology. Um, so that, that takes us to what we have time for here. Thank you again for being on the radio show and for providing your insights. This takes us to the end of this show. You can learn about this program and all of our programs at CheekyScientist.com. If you are new to your job search, you don't know which position's right for you, you can go to PhDsGetHired.com. That's plural, PhDs. GetHired.com to learn more about our flagship program, the Cheeky Scientist Association that has helped thousands of PhDs around the world get hired. It'll train you on the basics of your job search and help you find the right position for you. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. I'm Isaiah Henkel, the founder of Cheeky Scientist and the creator of the Cheeky Scientist Association. I wanted to quickly tell you that memberships into the association are available to PhDs listening to Cheeky Scientist Radio by using the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com, PhDs. G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type PhDsGetHired.com into your website browser, scroll down to the orange membership button and click on it, then enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. That's CheekyRadio, C-H-E-E-K-Y-R-A-D-I-O. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Are you worried about the rapidly shrinking job market? Like me, have you been seeing more and more articles on universities shutting down their research labs, furloughing employees, cutting postdocs and TAs, and even withdrawing PhD student funding? If so, it might be wise to start taking steps to protect your PhD career. You've worked very hard and very intelligently for years to establish yourself, but likely, you have not reached your full career potential yet. Perhaps you're not even getting respect and you're not getting the rewards that you deserve. The good news is you can get into an industry career where you can get paid well for doing meaningful work. All you need is the right knowledge and the right network. The Cheeky Scientist Association gives you lifetime access to the world's number one PhD-only job search training platform with multiple courses and the PhD-only job referral network of over 10,000-plus industry PhDs. Now is your chance to become a lifetime member for 20% off of the association. Just use the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com. P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D. Dot com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll to the orange membership button and click on it and enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. No recurring monthly fees, no recurring annual fees, nobody else offers this. phdsgethired.com, use the coupon code CheekyRadio. Remember your value as a PhD and remember that knowledge is power and your network is your net worth.